0: Hello and welcome to the Secular Buddhism podcast, a podcast that presents Buddhist teachings, concepts, and ideas from a secular perspective. You don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to simply be a better whatever you already are. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and let's jump into today's topic. The podcast episode I want to share today is not one of the ordinary podcasts where I record my thoughts around a specific topic. This is a podcast that I recorded as an interview on another podcast called 10,000 Heroes. And the host of that podcast, Anchor, invited me to be on the podcast to talk about Buddhism and a little bit about my story and how I encountered Buddhism. So you'll get a little bit of that uh, background story in this podcast episode, but I wanted to share the raw audio directly from their podcast to introduce you to their podcast. The uh, 10,000 Heroes, on their website, it says it's a show about purpose where they interview people that they admire about their journey with purpose, which is a journey that we're all on, whether we like it or not or acknowledge it or not. And then they share their insights, tools, and struggles with uh, the podcast listeners. So the 10,000 Heroes provides inspiration, intimacy, and maybe even a little bit of guidance as to what it means to live a truly purposeful life and how we can each get there in our own unique way. You can find the 10,000 Hero podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps by searching for 10,000 Heroes. I'm excited to share the audio from the interview that I did on that podcast. And real quick before jumping into that, I do want to, uh, by way of announcement, let you know that um, some of you may know I've done some treks in the past to Nepal. Uh, Originally, I was doing humanitarian trips. And if you follow the podcast, you'll know that I've transitioned over to doing mindful trekking which is a combination of a mindfulness retreat and trekking in the Himalayas. Well, last November, I was able to go do my second trek there with a group of 21 or 22 podcast listeners. It was a really neat experience, and I decided I for sure want to do it again. But this time, I'm going to do the uh, highest trek of all there, the kind of the big one, the trek to Everest Base Camp. I got to visit Everest Base Camp. I was um, surprisingly um, speechless with the experience of what it is to be standing at the foothills of the tallest peak on earth. It was a really, I could almost say spiritual experience, and I knew I had to go back. I wanted to go back and, and trek all the way there. So if you are interested in doing something like that, um, I do have a few spots left for November 2023. You can hear all the details, read all the details on secularbuddhism.com forward slash Nepal, or you can visit mindfultrekking.com. Both of those will go to the same place and show you the details. The gist of it is it's a 16-day trek uh, in November And we will be flying helicopters from Kathmandu to Lukla, trekking from Lukla all the way to Everest Base Camp, and then helicopter back from there to Kathmandu. Um, It will be a combination of a mindfulness retreat and trekking adventure, because I, I think those are two really fun things to combine. And it will also include the new course that I'm launching, the Inner Peace Roadmap, as uh, as a course that we'll do together, the, the trekking group only, in a personal personalized format in the months leading up to the trek. So if that's something that sounds appealing or interesting to you, you can get all the details, like I said, on secularbuddhism.com forward slash Nepal or mindfultrekking.com. And if you have questions, reach out to me there. There's a form on there. Um, so with that, let's go back to the interview of the podcast, 10,000 Heroes. I hope this interview gives you a little bit more of the backstory of my journey into Buddhism and, and some of the things that uh, I find to be useful and interesting with practicing Buddhism as a philosophy of life and as a, way, as a way of living everyday life. So with that, let's jump back into the interview for this podcast episode.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the first interview of season five. My guest today is Noah Reschetta. Uh, This is just a fantastic interview for me because Noah, in a sense, is a role model. He's really a hero. He has this podcast called Secular Buddhism. He's really steady. He's really gentle. And he's provided for, I think, seven years, all of these really practical, short episodes on how people can improve their experience of life from this lens of secular Buddhism. So I, I really admire that. And, and he's grown quite an audience through being just incredibly real and authentic and passionate. So clearly that's something that someone in my position admires. But also, I love the fact, and this comes out in the interview, that he used to be a missionary, think like a Mormon missionary, and his perspective now, as a guy who's expounding on secular Buddhism, clearly like a very different ideological and philosophical framework than being a Mormon missionary, he's just so gentle. With his former self and so loving and so kind so compassionate and there's just so much for me and i think for all of us to learn about how we relate to others and how we relate to our current and former selves through that so there's a lot more in the episode i'm really excited to bring it to you welcome to season five welcome to 2023 and enjoy before we begin this episode i want to put in a quick word from our sponsor me We got the name for this podcast from the mission of Momentum Lab, our coaching program. We are both incubating the next generation of heroes and the next step in the evolution of consciousness. If you listen to the show, you're already a part of that process. Thank you. So if you haven't already, sign up for the newsletter to get insights, tools, and inspiration on living a purposeful, visionary, and impactful life. And if it ever dawns on you, that that's easier to do with a community of excellence urging you on that it can make the difference in you achieving your personal goals, check out Momentum Lab. Okay, back to the show. I'm, I'm really stoked to have this conversation. You know, Dan, Dan talked about you a little bit in our talk and then I listened, you know, I've read some of your, your work and I listened to a bunch of episodes this morning as I was doing my daily Red ritual, and the one, the one, I think the first one I listened to was, was it like be, be who you are, just, just like be who you are. It's a recent episode. I mean, th- there were just so many things in that that spoke to me, and I've been doing this kind of personal growth, personal development, trying to combine mathematics and rationality and spirituality for a long time but a lot of what the voice of my head has been like you have this potential you need to live up to it you have to keep doing things And it was exactly what you were saying it was not like a helpful or effective voice in your head and I was <laughs> like god it's so true <laughs> <clears throat> and, I, and I was doing it while I was making bread and I make bread every morning it's a thing I started uh, eight years ago when I got married and my wife is French and she's really into you know like French people good quality bread and since we live in the US that's just not available to her liking so I learned how to make bread and it's this daily practice that I got really good at without having any ambition about or wanting to be good at or anything and it's the exact opposite of my meditation practice where I've been like trying so hard for so many years and I still feel like a total failure and doesn't bring me a lot of joy and the bread thing is just like an infinite fountain of joy with no expectations. And it, i mean, it's like a it was it was like a real lesson, like concrete lesson of what
0: you were saying as I was listening to you. It's like, damn. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the big difference, isn't it, between the feeling that I should or I have to do this versus I get to, or I'm doing it just because I enjoy it, but there's no compelling reason to like there's no belief behind it that's influencing. The decision-making that says you have to do this um and then it becomes a more playful thing and you do it because you can because why not rather than because i feel like i should or uh, i think there's a big difference there yeah
1: yeah and did you learn that through your study of buddhism or did you have some kind of visceral experience of that and then go and learn the theory afterwards
0: uh i would say it was a little bit of both it was through learning uh various concepts and uh, ideas in Buddhism, and particularly the teachings around non-attachment or holding loosely to views. Um, I recognize that holding too tightly, even to to the view of, you know, these teachings are beneficial, or I should be meditating, things like that. um, You're stuck in that same cycle of holding a little bit too tightly to it. It was like, well, why do I want to meditate? And when that transition to Not because I feel like I should, but because why not? If I, if I enjoy going out for a walk, then I go out and I enjoy the walk, but not because I feel I have to be out there walking. Same thing happened with the, with the practices, particularly meditation. And it became a much more enjoyable experience because there's no, no pressure that I have to do it anymore. There's no end result, no, no benefit that I'm trying to extract out of it. It's, uh, the process itself is the enjoyable part
1: it's it's interesting specifically with meditation because in our mainstream culture in the last 20 years it's become much more of a thing people are like oh you should be meditating and it has all these health benefits and cognitive benefits and this and that i mean do you think that's it ends up being counterproductive
0: i think it, i think it does in a lot of ways because it ends up being one more of those things that causes you unnecessary stress or anxiety cuz you add it to the you know, to the pile of things that I feel I should be doing and I feel bad that I'm not doing them. Either I'm not doing them or I feel like I'm not doing them well. And that's really not the point. I think sometimes meditation is presented like um, a tool, right? That's like, hey, if you want more peace, then you need this. Or if you want to be more successful in your productivity, then you need to start doing this. And while those are benefits that result from the practice, that th- those are not the goal of the practice. I think the, the goal of the practice is to break from the habitual reactivity and the autopilot mode that we kind of go into, um, and doing something deliberate without the need for it to be anything. It's like, I'm just doing this just to do it. And that's when it, that's when you start to reap those benefits. So it's, it's kind of a catch 22, right? Because uh, if you're doing it to just for the sake of the benefits, then you may not get those benefits. But if you're doing it without the expectation, then uh, you may enjoy benefits. Kind of like your, your bread making. You know, if you have the stress that you're, you have to make this bread because you're selling them or, you know, there's a high expectation for the quality, um, it may turn out the way you want. But anytime it's not turning out the way you want, now you're not enjoying the process. But because you do it in a way where it's just something that you do and you don't have to do it, uh the benefit of it turning out great is that's the that's the icing on the cake, but it didn't matter because it was the process of making it that was what mattered, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's this it's this incredible just to like draw the metaphor a little, a little further, it's this incredible thing that the bread I make is it's subjectively awesome now. And people love it and I, I make four loaves a day. And I give away three and people, you know, they'll trade for it. They'll, they want to buy it. It's, it's not really for sale, but uh, people just, just love it. And every time I make them like a mistake, it's not a normal one. I just don't care. I'm just like, oh, this is an experiment that happened because the sourdough got too hot. And it's, it's just always good. You know, <laughs> people are always appreciative and I haven't had that experience in anything that I've like really tried for mastery at because of this other narrative that like, I'm not good enough doing this thing. And the, the bread is, it's just like you're saying, it's just full. It's just play. Part of my project, you know, this podcast, 10,000 heroes, it's like mixed between a hypothesis and, a, and just like a blind belief that every one of us has a certain song we can sing or gift we can give. And if we get attuned with what that is, that's actually the way, like by being ourselves in the most radical way, that's actually the way we can make the most contribution, and it, it seems like it flows pretty well with this this concept you're you're presenting of just being what you are.
0: Yeah, I think it, it really does. And I think from such a young age, uh, we, we kind of adopt the societal norms and and views that mold us into, you know, whether it's intentional or not, it's just what happens. It kind of molds us into this duality of who I am, who I think I should be. Those are two. And then there's who I think you think I should be, right? You meaning society or parents. And we're always juggling these things. Like, And I, I don't think we spend a whole lot of time just trying to get comfortable in our own skin because we're always caught in the narratives that we have of who we think we should be or who we think others think we should be. And sometimes that's where we spend most of our lives is fulfilling that role, trying to to make sure that narrative is satisfied. Um, but when when we do get the chance to to go back to the the very first one, right? Just who am I, and just have full permission to just be me and to get comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I think there's a real sense of a peace and contentment that arises from being able to do that. Yeah, you know, it, it brings up for me.
1: Recently, I did this healing retreat in, in Brazil, and it was very challenging. It was kind of like a meditation retreat. But I I, I became aware of a lot of like self-judgment and self-violence that I didn't know I had. And I was like, dude, I'm supposed to be like the Bob Marley guy. How, how do I have all this self-criticism? And then it's like, wow, I just I need much more healing than I thought I did. And, it, and at that, and I, I never even had like really bad, negative experiences. In life. Very privileged, blessed, fun, easy life. And it's just like, okay, if I need all this healing, it's probably like a lot of people need a lot of healing. Do you, do you, do you have a sense of this be, be what you are, be who you are perspective? Is that just our culture or is that just how the humans end up raising their kids?
0: Um, that's a good question. i I feel like that is a universal thing. I think in in all cultures, you kind of encounter this. Uh, we can't help it, right? You, you You're raised in a culture where you adopt um, conditioning is what the 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 Buddhist expression would be. the conditioning of your culture. A, an example of this would be words, right? Here we are communicating in English. So all of the experiences that we have of feelings and emotions and moods, uh, we define them based on the words that we have. Thanks to the word, I can say, I'm feeling happy. And we both kind of know what that means if I say happy or if I say sad or if I say whatever the word is. Um, But we're kind of boxed in by, by the meaning that we have of those words. So that happens with language but it also happens with just general cultural norms. And um, I, I've noticed this just uh, being, I, I'm half Mexican and I, I grew up, I spent my formative years growing up in Mexico. And I kind of have both cultures, both languages. And I noticed there are certain ideas or expressions that, that can come across easier in Spanish because of the specific words that you have to define that mood or that emotion. And then, uh, in English you have other ones. And I've noticed there's, there's almost like the, the personality and the humor that I have when I'm in Spanish mode and I'm in Mexico versus the humor and the personality that kind of comes in from my English mode when I'm in the U S and that to me, um, clarifies, or, or I guess, uh, uh yeah it makes it clear that that is what happens we we kind of adopt a cultural norms uh whether we want to or not because that's just we're like sponges and we grow up in an environment where we just take everything in we we make meaning of things we take in words um we uh, assign meanings to the experiences that we're having and we define it all within the context of of what we the the words that we have in our mind and every culture is slightly different um So yeah, I do think that in general, all of us will be defined, uh, to a great extent by the culture where we grew up, not only the, the culture of that society, but our particular, our particular family culture, um, influenced by worldviews. You know, if your, if your family has a specific worldview or a religion it adheres to, um, we, we end up kind of being shaped and defined by that. So. Yeah, I think that it's it's a universal thing. We're all kind of just um, molded, so to speak, into the person that we adopt through these societal norms and views. or At least who you know how how we think we should be that kind of fits the the mold of of where we grew up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and do you have a sense that? I mean,
1: my, my 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 thought was always that the teachers, you know, like the Jesus krishna buddha type characters that they keep coming to us thankfully and sharing some knowledge that the whole point was to like move us beyond that a little bit so we could like raise our kids without giving them that whole trip about you're supposed to be someone different than who you are is that do you have a sense that that, that's the goal that you're helping contribute to or do you think this this is just how it's going to be and there's always going to be uh this process of like growing into adulthood, realizing that like, hey, I could just, that that developmental process of every person of coming to self-acceptance is that's, we're just going to start, do you see, you see what I'm saying? That we're, we're going to start out, we're going to be kids, and then we're going to have this whole trip of like, oh, I'm not supposed to be who I am. And then we're going to learn that, oh, it's fine. Or do you think we can move
0: past that dip? You know, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I've thought about this a lot. I do find it interesting that a lot of these um, historical figures that arise like the Jesus Buddha type characters seem to have their uh, or the origin of their transformation seems to occur around a similar age, right? Which is the similar age of midlife crisis. Um, I, think, I think there is something to say about reaching a point in life where you where you kind of pause and say, "Wait, am I doing this correctly? Like, could there be another way?" And maybe there's some form of uh, awareness or enlightenment or whatever we want to call it that takes place, where you just start to see things differently through a new a new lens or a new perspective. Um, I think all of us can access that at some point. Um, you know, I, I feel like life in general is like a game of Tetris. If you'll recall the, you know, the object of the game of Tetris, you have shapes that show up and you're trying to make the best of those shapes. You can twist them around and move them left and right, and you're trying to make them fit on each other. But the point of the, of, of the game is you just play it until it's game over. There's no, there's no real point to it, right? Um, and there's limited control, which gives us the illusion of being in control of the game. But really, you don't know what shape is gonna show up next. I feel like um, that's what life is like, but we go through life thinking we're playing a game of chess where it's calculated. And if I do this, life will respond with that. And sometimes it's going well. So it feels like, okay, this really is how it is. And I can master this. I can somehow win the game and winning the game may be different for us uh, based on societal norms and views, but it could be, you know, playing the game of success and trying to be uh, wealthy or famous or powerful or something something like that. Then at some point, if you live long enough, the chess game doesn't play according to the rules because it was never a chess game. It's been Tetris all along, and this random shape shows up in the form of uh, loss. You know, the loss of a loved one or sickness that you weren't expecting or or something that just doesn't compute the way you were thinking it would. And that's the moment of the you know the proverbial rug gets swept out from under your feet and you're kind of left with, well, wait a second. I, I didn't think that this was going to happen this way. So now how do I make sense of it all? I think those are those key moments that certain characters in history experience and they, they make that transformation from being thinking they're caught up in a game of chess and switching to realizing the nature of reality is uncertainty we don't know what's coming our way. How do we best deal with that? And you and you see echoes of this um, in the teachings of a lot of a lot of these um, historical characters. Like you know, Jesus has the whole analogy of be like the lilies in the field that don't have to stress or worry about what's coming. You know, the the Buddha has the whole concept of groundlessness and becoming comfortable with discomfort, uh, not needing that certainty. And I think as we start to let go of the need to have something firm to stand on, uh, we, you know, in, in one sense, in a religious sense, it could be that you put faith in God. In in the Buddhist sense, it could be that you become comfortable with discomfort and with uncertainty, and then we start to find that new grounding for, I guess, the remainder of our lives after that point, where we can uh, we can more skillfully tackle the game and the pieces that show up because we're no longer bent out of shape because we got the, the the shape that we didn't want. Instead of thinking, oh, the world has done me an injustice. I didn't deserve this piece. We, we start to recognize any piece can show up for anyone. And there was no, you know, it's not about um, getting what's fair or getting what I deserve or avoiding what I don't deserve. I could be a kind, compassionate person and still get this horrible Tetris piece that now I've got to figure out how to make it work. And there was no uh, there's nothing personal about it. That's just the nature of reality. I feel like that's an important transition that a lot of people go through if they live long enough. Um, That realization that that's how life is. It's like a game of Tetris. And it's not so much like the game of chess that we thought we were playing. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful metaphor, because the chess is totally totally deterministic
1: right there's no luck it's all strategy you know all the moves that are possible in advance and tetris is really it's like it's just so clear yeah (laughs) you're just reacting to things outside of your control and doing your best right yeah wow Mm -hmm. i know i I take it i take the metaphor it's deep and it's so easy for me at least it's like i I think of myself as so capable in the doing realm Mm -hmm. it's just so easy for that to like just flow into the chess mentality of like, oh, just because I know how to do things, I can do anything and I'm in control of what happens here, which is just so patently false. Right. Yeah. So did you, um okay. So for people who are traditionally religious, I think they have a bit of an advantage in this zone. You grow up with this whole like God or faith concept. There's this kind of built in humility there. Did you
0: grow up with religion? I did. Yes, I grew up uh in a religious household and had a, a very religious life, I'd say, through all the way through my adulthood. I, I spent um my formative years in, you know, in middle school and high school, I would attend seminary and institute classes like an hour uh an hour each day studying religion as part of my um uh, almost like in conjunction with school. Um and then my school was a religious school. I went to a, a, um, a Catholic re, um, high school and middle school uh, w- without being Catholic. So my mom's side of the family is um, Catholic, and then my dad converted to Mormonism. So I grew up kind of in both of those cultures as a, as a devout Mormon, but with heavy Catholic uh, background and upbringing, too, because of my schooling and family. And then I spent two years as a missionary out proselyting in, in South America. So yeah, I definitely had a very strong religious upbringing. But I went through in my early adult years in my um, 30s, I think, it was, yeah, my early 30s, through a deconstruction of my beliefs and what what some people would define as a, fa- a crisis of faith. And so the way that I understood reality to be is not working. It's That's not how it's actually presenting itself. Um, and as I wrestled with reconciling that, I encountered this notion in Buddhism, you know, of of uncertainty and groundlessness. It's a concept called groundlessness. But essentially, what happened to me was I was always fixated on on answers. You know, life. I think we go through life and we kind of have these deep existential, if we want to call them, questions that just linger. Like, why are we here? Who am I? You know, what is the meaning of all of this? or what happens when, when we die? And I, I had the answers to all of these existential questions through my belief system. But like I said, when, when, when they don't match, when they suddenly, for whatever reason, don't make sense to you anymore, you try to grasp it, at, at some other answer that might give me a sense of, this makes sense again. So that's what I did. I kind of went into seeking mode, seeking specifically other answers that might be more, that might work better for me. And as I was going through that process, I encountered Buddhism and Buddhism doesn't really have answers to any of those existential questions. Uh, Well, let's look at the question itself. Where does this question come from? Why do I feel the need to know? And that shift, it was a radical shift in my way of thinking. I was always so focused on the answers. And here I was being told, well, forget the answer for a moment. Let's focus on the question because the question actually matters more than the answer, you know? And when we sit with the question long enough, standing of the question and where the question comes from and why I feel the need to know, uh, when I can become comfortable with the uncertainty of, of questions like that, that are unanswerable questions, then my comfort anchored from having an answer to feeling okay with understanding the question and not needing an answer. Technical issues, but audio. Now, a little transition. I love talking about this kind of stuff. It's something that brings me um, a lot of joy, and I, I feel like it ends up usually being really beneficial for others to... Um, hear some of these concepts and ideas that they had never thought about. Uh, that's how it was for me. I was encountering uh, a way of thinking that had never occurred to me before. And it gave me a sense of peace because like I said, I was so focused for so long on having answers and that when the answer is, uh, when I have the answer to a point where it's satisfactory to me, that's when I will have peace. So, what I strive to have is the the answer. Um, and this this was a big shift to say, well, let's just sit with the questions long enough to where that same sense of peace may come from understanding the question and not feeling the need to have an answer. And then that uh, that is a deeper sense of peace because like I said before, it can't be shaken. It's a sense of peace that comes from the, being content with not knowing being content with not having answers and rather than thinking, I'll be okay once I finally get the answer to this. um, There's a Zen story. Uh, Zen is a a form of Buddhism that's pretty known for having like riddles and stories and what they call koans. And these are meant to be stories or riddles that baffle you. And again, with the the idea that if if you if you come if you approach this with the thought of if I can make sense of things that's when I'll be okay, Zen is saying when you become comfortable with understanding that you can't make sense of things that's when you'll be okay. So they introduce these colons that are meant to be baffling riddles, right? And uh, some of them are pretty famous, like there's the, uh, the the notion of of the sound of one hand clapping, and it's like you know, the question is, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And you can wrestle with that conceptually. You can try to answer it. Um, but for me, um, as with all koans, it's not about the answer. It's just about sitting with the question and ultimately like, well, why do I even need to know the, the sound of one hand clapping? It's whatever it is. That's what it is. Um, but I don't have to define it and say it's this and then give you the answer. So with this approach, with the, with the notion of koans, the notion of questions versus answers, um, I feel like life in a way is uh, the koan. It's the, the riddle and trying to make sense of life. That's, that's the riddle that we're always trying to answer. And it's something that you can't really answer. You don't make sense of it, but you experience it because here we are. We're living, um, but what if i didn't have to have the answer what if i was okay with sitting with the riddle itself and life is the riddle it's like it's not something to be solved it's something to be experienced and i'm experiencing it as i go along uh and i think we forget that sometimes because here we are experiencing life but that's not enough we're trying to make sense of it and say but why am i experiencing life or what happens you know where what happened before what happens after or we're trying to do more than just experience what is. Uh, so I, I think that's, um, that's, that's an, an idea and a, 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 and a notion that sometimes people will hear and say, huh, I've never thought of it that way. And then they start to sit with a little bit more comfort in the experience of being alive rather than in, uh, in trying to make sense of, of what it is to be alive, you know? Yeah. I
1: love that. I love that distinction just to be, to be in it. I'm concerned about what's happening in this moment. Yeah. Which is, which is our, I mean, and that's, and had this other, I mean, it's not a radical realization, but I had this thought the other day that when we think about consciousness, it's a big question. What is, what is consciousness? Hard, the hard problem of consciousness. A lot of times I end up thinking about thinking and like, what is the difference between beings that think and beings that don't think? But actually to have a conscious experiment experience is not about thinking, it's about the feeling, right? It's like actually having an experience as opposed to just an experience that comes out of the stimuli that affect us. And so to, to me, that like maps to what, what you're saying is it's not, it's not really like, it doesn't really matter what we think about it. The, the key part of it is that we are having this conscious experience and we can have some sort of influence over shepherding what that conscious experience is.
0: right? Yeah. And I think, like you said, consciousness itself is such a difficult word to, like, what does it mean, right? Um Not a lot of people sit and think about a notion like concept or, or a, a concept like uh, consciousness. Another one that I think is much more universal and still equally problematic is something like love. Um Almost everyone will experience it at some point, the idea of falling in love or feeling love towards Your parents or your kids or your pets. Um, how do you define it though? I think a lot of people, if they really had to sit and define it, would really struggle because it's like, well, I don't, I don't know exactly how I define it, but most people would say, but I know what it feels like. I've experienced it. Um, and I think this is similar to that. It's like, maybe the problem is trying to define it. Maybe, maybe the, the right way to approach it is I don't have to define it. I just have to experience it or or I don't have to, but I get to, I get to experience it. Uh, and I think fortunately for me, love is one of those that I could certainly say I, I've, I, I have experienced it. I do experience it, but it would get a little problematic if I had to write it down and, and actually define it. Um, consciousness is similar. It's like, I don't know exactly how I define it, but I can tell you, I have multiple instances where I really feel like I'm feeling what it is to be alive. I don't know what that's called, but, um, but I'm feeling it. (laughs) Um, and and I think anyone, anyone could, you know, if we approach it that way, then I feel like it's a lot more bonding, you know, to like, man, you know what it is to be alive. You know what it is to feel, to have strong feelings, feelings of, of, of loss or pain or sadness. Intense feelings of joy, happiness, contentment. Um, but as soon as we start to delineate and say, well, you know, let's put the line here. Where 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 did this become this? Then we start comparing them. Oh, I don't know if he's experienced love because that's not how I experienced love. But if we don't define it, it we allow it to be, we, we both know what it is to feel and to be alive. <laughs> and I think that's a, a more healthy approach to it, don't you think?
1: Mm. yeah yeah i mean it's um i guess inclusive is a word that comes to mind yeah there's also this this room for the mystery of it right like i could feel it in different ways yeah consciousness love The, the other thing that comes to mind when you're saying that is you know purpose you know this podcast is a lot about purpose so rather than trying to define it i'll just i'll just ask you have you have you felt times in your life where you're what I would call living in your purpose and felt times where you were not you recognize those feelings
0: uh yes i would definitely say there have been times in my life where i felt like i was living in my sense of purpose um i mean to be honest i felt this i felt this when i was a missionary for my church that like this is the point this is the whole reason that i'm here is to spread this message Um, and then later I felt like, oh no, that wasn't the purpose. Um, and then I've since shifted back to it's the purpose is all of it. Like it's, it's what it is. And now I feel it again, not because I'm doing something specific or sharing a a certain message. I feel like I'm fulfilling the purpose of just, if the purpose for me, which this is what I think for me, what it feels like is the purpose was to just be here and to experience this, that like, there is no purpose. The purpose is to, for me is to realize there is no purpose. And now what am I going to do with life? And I feel like that's where I am. Like I'm trying to live the life of purposeless purpose, you know, (laughs) to give you the, the, a Buddhist answer to that purposeless purpose for me would feel like it's like a post purpose purpose. Yes. And it feels like that. I feel like that is where I am. I'm and, and and that would be whether I'm doing this or whether I'm doing something else or whether I'm not doing anything, I would still feel like I'm in that space of purposeless purpose um, and enjoying it. Uh, observing mostly, to be honest, just observing the experience of being alive and being content with that. It's almost like I feel like I somehow lucked out into this movie theater where I sat down and I'm watching the show of life. It's like, Oh my gosh, this is the best movie that's ever been made. And now I just get to watch it. I don't, I don't have to do anything like watching it would be enough. But the fact that I get to interact with the movie as it's unfolding, well, that's just icing on the cake now. Um, But watching it feels like that's enough. That's the show. Um, That's how purpose makes sense for me.
1: Okay. I mean, I need, I think I need your help here because I'm, I'm, really wanting to project that I mean just the fact that you took this this call which you had like no (laughs) there's like no incentive to do really (laughs) but like you you have this you have a message like I, I feel like you must have a kind of vocation like a kind of call to share the process that you've gone through so it doesn't it doesn't seem like to me it would be just all things being equal if you were working at a gas station or carving wooden spoons or doing this podcast about secular Buddhism. There's like there's one of those things you're you're called to do. Is that not
0: not right? Uh yeah, I think for me what it what it kind of became, I noticed there were two main things that I thoroughly enjoy doing. One of them is talking about these topics of mindfulness, Buddhism. And the other one is talking about Paragliding and flying, like those are my two passions. And several years ago, I was at work realizing what if I could, what if I could kind of position myself to where these are the two things that I get to talk about all the time. And I don't have to do marketing and website development and the things that I was doing for work. And that set me on this course to do a podcast and to start a flight school. And now those are the two things that I do. Had you contacted me and said, hey, we want to talk to you about paragliding, and I, w- I would have been on this call just as eager and excited to talk about paragliding and how you do ridge soaring and finding thermals to stay up in the air Um, because I, it's something I, I really enjoy. And this is the other one. The benefit of this one that I would say is an added benefit is I think this talking about these concepts Can produce profound changes for people in their life if they are looking for these types of concepts. Uh, So does paragliding. You know, I'll talk about paragliding, and someone who's dreamt of flying their whole life will hear it and get all inspired, and then learn to fly, and they're like, "You changed my life for the better because now you taught me to fly." I get that on both sides, and on this side, I think it's a little bit more satisfying to have that sense of giving somebody a new set of, of of tools to deal a little bit more skillfully with the complexity of being alive and all that that entails. Um, So, yeah, there is a part of it that does feel like there could be kind of a mission to it. But it doesn't feel like preaching to me because I don't think this is for everyone. I think there are people who would probably start listening to our talk today and say, these two wackadoodles, what are they talking about? They're totally wrong. You know, the, the answer's over here in my rigid worldview. And that would be fine. I would be like, yeah, stay over there. This probably isn't for you. And that's the way I approach paragliding too. If you're terrified of heights, don't come try to learn to fly. Why would you do that to yourself? Um, but but it is for someone. And that's how I treat this conversation here. These concepts and ideas of, of uh, groundlessness and purposeless purpose. Like, it's not for everyone, but it is for someone. And just like I happened to come across these notions and ideas, and it changed my life. I didn't know that these were concepts that would be beneficial for me, but they were. I like to talk about them because maybe someone listening will say, wow, these concepts are actually, they resonate with the way I try to make sense of life and reality, and it'll be beneficial to them. And that's why I like to talk about them uh, on any platform at any time, because someone might hear it and say, I'm so glad I heard that today
1: yeah okay I mean I thought that is a great that does a great job of answering the, the, the question and also like justifying this little bit of projection that there is there is voc- vocation to it and i and I, I think that distinction is really great that just because you're passionate or one is passionate and one feels a sense of mission and vocation doesn't mean that it has to be for everybody you know like there's no expectation that that people are going to be into it but there is like a deep desire to contribute in a specific way
0: yes yes exactly
1: yeah and i really like that you felt this experience we talked about the experience of consciousness the experience of love the experience of purpose you felt that doing this missionary thing that you would just not do now but, but yeah you can kind of recognize an honor that you felt that the you that was then felt that then yes definitely don't have, you don't have to judge you don't have to judge it or criticize it right from your perspective now
0: yeah, and you know, I've had people from my my former uh, worldview, from from that world that I was in, ask me like, "Well, you know, what do you think about when you were a missionary? Where do you feel like you were out there deceiving people or teaching them false things?" And I say, "No." And they're like, "But but you don't believe any of that stuff anymore." It's like, "No, I don't." Well, then why, you know, why were you, why would you be okay with thinking that you were out there? teaching all these messages at some point. is it because the me of then believed that I was doing the right thing and teaching what needed to be taught. The me of now doesn't view it that way, but I don't view those as the same people. That's like, the me of now totally honors the me of then, um, even though we're worlds apart now in how we understand the world. Um, And I cherish that memory and those experiences and those feelings, even though there's no way I would go out there and do that now or even share those same messages because those messages don't resonate to me they don't make sense to me um but yeah i am at peace with who i was then
1: yeah yeah it reminds me of this guy one of my mentors and friends guy daniel that i lived with in in argentina many years ago who used to be a he was a catholic priest and he left the priesthood because whatever it's it's a long story but he fell in love left the priesthood but he was really into organic farming and I was studying organic farming at this place. He was there and he's like, yeah, he was like, you know, I used to think God is going to save you and I was so passionate about it. And now I think organic vegetables are going to save you. And I'm so passionate about it. And I have no idea how long it's going to last. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like tomorrow I'll think something else and I'll, and I'll do that. And he'll do it with his whole being and his whole heart. And it's just so beautiful. Yeah transparent
0: that uh, that reminds me I have a friend named Pamela who um, taught me this beautiful expression that um, when when you encounter someone who has a very strong belief about something for example like if I were to talk to the me of 15 years ago when I was a missionary that me would be pretty stern with the message of you need to follow this path because no other path is the correct path rather than that rather than me saying, no, you're wrong, like all paths are good. Um, this expression Pamela taught me is to counter things like that with, I feel strongly about things too, you know, maybe not the same things, but th- that's what it reminded me with the story you were just saying. It was, you know, whether it's God needs to save you or organic farming is going to save you, I think we can all kind of identify, I, I sometimes feel strongly about things too. Maybe not the same things as you, but I know that ceiling. <laughs> I tend to think ah, everyone's life would be a little bit better if you got into paragliding and just flew around. But at the same time, I know that that's not true. That would make some people's lives a lot more <laughs> stressful and, and scary. Um, but it does so much for me that I think, well, you know, um, well, I certainly enjoy it, but I know it's not for everyone. So I frame it in that same framing you know, of, uh, if you tell me what the big thing is that you're passionate about, I could say, well, there are things that I am passionate about, too. We can identify our similarity there, even though it's not the same thing that we're passionate about. Yeah. And the
1: underlying desire is really one of of, of giving and contribution. You're like, I found this awesome thing. I really wanted it. I want you to do it because I know it's going to make you happier. You uh, know, whether or not that's true. That's that's where it's coming from, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, one of her let's see. A couple times today you mentioned loss. And you mentioned it in a way that made me think you experienced something like that and it had changed you. Is that Is that true?
0: Oh, uh yes, definitely that wasn't the catalyst for my big change. Loss occurred later. Uh I lost my dad to uh, cancer. Uh, that was a, a loss that by the time I, I went through that, I felt much more equipped with uh, understanding my feelings and emotions um, because I at that point, I, Buddhism was already um, well-established as a practice for me in my life. But going through that transition of loss, one thing I found interesting, I think prior to that experience, loss produces a very very strong emotions. And I think we're resistant to feeling emotions. We don't, especially the uh, the unpleasant ones, right? Like sadness and pain. We don't want to feel those. And we dread the thought that we might experience this, you know, soon. So with my dad, with cancer, it's, it's a slow process there at the end. Like, you know, it's coming. It's not an overnight surprise. Uh, and when you experience loss in a very surprising manner, it just suddenly hits you. But with with my dad, it was like we saw it coming and it's getting closer and closer. And I could see other family members like just dreading the moment of loss and the intensity of those feelings that were going to arise because they're already starting to formulate. Where with me, I felt very grateful that I had no desire to push those feelings away. There was no aversion To pain, no aversion to crying. So it allowed me to have this beautiful transition at the end with my dad to like sit with him and tell him how much I love him and thank him for the memories and sit and cry with him and, and, uh, feel like feel all the feelings without feeling ashamed and without feeling aversion. Like, oh no, I don't want people to see that I'm welling up or that I'm crying. It was like, no, this is the beauty of this moment. I'm just, feeling it all. And had I not uh, had I not encountered these notions and ideas of that Buddhism gave me, I think I would have missed that opportunity because I would have tried so hard to not feel that until I have to right, to so the actual moment of loss. But I didn't feel that I felt like oh, I'm not afraid to cry. I mean, even now I can talk about it and well up and I feel zero uh, sorrow around that. You know, sometimes we, we start to feel and when we're really feeling, we say, Oh, sorry, as if I should apologize that you saw that I was getting sentimental. And I, uh, I don't feel that. I feel like, Hey, if I'm going to sit here and talk about my dad, yeah, I'm probably going to well up and, and, and feel tears, but I'm not going to apologize about it. Cause that's what happens when you think about someone that you've lost that you love. Right. Um, I thought that was a really interesting thing to go through, um, with my dad's loss. The earlier loss for me that was the catalyst that um, became the the start of the faith crisis and the um, yeah I guess just the the rug swept out from under your feet moment that was different that was um, I was going through a really rocky stage in my marriage and the rug had been swept out from under my feet it was all on the brink of collapse um, and in that in that period of time I I really decided I needed to dig deep into my my faith, my beliefs, because at the time I thought that is probably the culprit for why the marriage is rocky. Is I'm not good enough of a I don't know a believer. If I don't know how to word that, but I'm not a good enough person. So, which is weird because I was I was I lived everything textbook, you know. But uh, I'm trying to reconcile. Right. Cause back then you're thinking, I'm playing the game of, 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 chess. And the way the, the rules work is that if I'm following these rules and I'm avoiding doing these things on this other list, life should be working out for me. But that, but I'm still finding myself in this rocky place. So I went digging deeper and the, and the more I went digging, the more I would uncover things that I didn't know. Um, I'm like, oh, I, I don't know how I feel about this now. Church history. You know, any religion, you go digging into its origins and you're always gonna, uh, it's always problematic when you look under those covers. Uh, that's what was happening with me. So that was the catalyst that led towards, um, finding another way and, and discovering Buddhism. Um, but like I said, it was years into that that I, where I first encountered like close loss, which was the loss of my dad. Prior to that, I had lost my grandma, um, I lost a good friend when I was little in elementary school. That was a, a meaningful experience that I went through that kind of left me always thinking about death. Like, I feel like death is one of those things you kind of try to put it away and not think about it. But because I had a friend in school, like I remember it, it, it became a topic that was almost always on my mind. The thought that, oh, geez, I could lose any of my friends at any moment which helped me become a much better friend because it was always on my mind that I don't know how long I'll have these friends. So I've always been like a good friend because that's in the back of my mind. And I would hate to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh no, that was the last interaction we had. So yeah, those are some of those pivotal moments for me in my own journey. Yeah. Wow. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I I just love that
1: what what you said about the thing that people do about saying sorry when they have emotions, as if it's like, oh, well, we're supposed to maintain this fiction that we're robots. <laughs> yeah. Actually, accidentally revealed a little bit of my humanity to you. Uh-huh. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, Which, those are the, those are the moments where I feel
0: connected to people.
1: It's exactly, like,
0: wow, you actually you're a human. Yes, you know what's crazy when when I was going through that with my dad, and and then he passed away. I remember very clearly thinking. Oh my gosh! Everybody, at some point, has lost someone, is losing someone, or will lose someone, and it's going to feel like this. And I remember thinking, how could you ever, how could we ever, not get along with each other? I mean, just that all I have to do is think like if you were to tell me you're, you know, are are, are are your parents still around? You still have your parents. So when I talk to someone and I think one day you're gonna feel what I felt, that. Instantly bonds me to where I feel like compassion and kindness for you because you're going to feel that. And and when I talk to someone who has lost their parents, I feel the same thing. I'm like, ah, you you know what this is. Now I know what it is. And that moment bonded me to them, and in a way, it bonds me to you because there's no way around it. We're all going to eventually lose the people that we love. And once you've felt that, I feel like how could we ever? Disagree or argue or fight over something. It'd be like deep in the back of my mind. I'd be like, I don't care what it is that we were, we're at odds over views, political, religious, whatever, because deeper than that is this human experience of loss that we're all going to go through or some have gone through, are going through or will go through. And that immediately makes me feel like now there we connect because when that day comes and you need like, to talk to someone who's been through it, that's where people like me are like, well, I've been through it. Let's talk to it. Or you need a hug or, you know, all the human things that to me is, uh, really powerful. And what else is there? You know, at the end of the day, those are the things that really matter. Yeah.
1: You know, it, wow. It, it makes me think of, you know, the, 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 the Buddha story of discovering suffering and death and old age and disease and this take on it that I, never occurred to me before this conversation that those are the things the inevitabilities Mm -hmm. that we just that we just share all of us yeah and those are actually the things that inextricably link us you know that we all have just death and grief waiting on our doorstep and that's something that instead of ignoring or denying that we can actually just connect about at any moment like meeting some random person on the bus and you can like just like hey like we we both know what we're what we're all info we're, we're all we're all like subject to this to disease, and we're gonna die of old age, and we're gonna be brought to our knees by grief of our friends and our pets and our parents and our kids, and yeah, yeah, you know I had my family's from India, and there's a strong in think in most cultures, really, but definitely in definitely Indian culture, there's a strong thing of like when are you going to get married, when are you gonna have kids, this whole thing, and I I did all of that like relatively late or maybe 15 years where my mom was asking that question or just stopped asking because she was like, What's oh, it's never going to happen. And I, and I remember when I had a kid, I had this sense of incredible understanding and connection with my parents and then everybody else who's ever had a kid. And it was like, oh, maybe this, maybe this is actually the deeper spiritual truth of why all these societies want everyone to have all these kids because they can really now you can relate <laughs> <laughs> now you like now you have to you just have this passport to acceptance of all these other people just like being a kid not everyone has kids but everyone is born right So, I mean, whether you've known them or not everyone has parents and yeah you can relate to that sense of of loss yep hmm. one of the things you mentioned that inspired me as I was listening to your podcast this morning was about anger. You know, so we we got into like sadness a little bit, and I, I've been in this conversation with some of my friends about self violence because I had a retreat experience a couple of weeks ago, and one of the people, one of my friends, wrote back to me and was like, "Yeah, I'm really trying to figure out what is the what is useful about anger, or how how can I rather than just denying." this emotion being like, Oh, this is bad. I shouldn't feel it. Like, what can I learn? Or what is the, that word in medicine? Like the, the, what are the indications for anger? (laughs) When, when is it appropriate? Um, yeah. Do you have anything to share about that?
0: You know, there, there's a, I'm reading a book right now called, uh, how we live is how we die by Pema Chodron. And there's a, there's a concept in, in Tibetan Buddhism, well, in Buddhism in general, but for sure in Tibetan Buddhism, called co-emergent wisdom. And the idea is that the thing that we see as a as a fault, let's say in this case, anger is the example. And I say, Oh, you know, I have the propensity to feel anger or to be angry. Co-emerging with that anger is the wisdom of of anger, right? The, the wisdom that arises from if I understand my anger, through that understanding sitting with it and befriending the emotion of anger, then I obtain the wisdom. And and this is how it is for all of the things that we view as um, I don't know, weaknesses might be the word. We, we all have them, right? Where we think oh, I'm really disorganized or I'm really lazy or Co-emerging with that thing that we would label as the thing I don't want is the thing that you actually do want, but you can't have one without the other. We go through our day-to-day lives feeling aversion for that thing, in this case, anger. And I might say, well, now I'm angry and I'm angry that I'm angry, so I'm going to really try to not be an angry person. What happens in that process, the aversion to the anger um, makes you miss the wisdom that co-emerges with the anger. So the Buddhist approach would say, okay, I, I can identify anger as something that, I'm, that I experience or I have the propensity for. So when it does arise, I'm going to sit with it. Where is this coming from? Why am I feeling this anger? What does anger actually feel like? Where am I feeling it in my body? And you, you kind of sit with it. And what happens is you don't get rid of it, but you change the relationship you have with anger. And then when this big ugly thing, you know, visualize your anger as a character that's sitting there in front of you. It's ugly. You don't like it. It smells. You don't want it there. You've been poking at it with these spears, which only makes it more mad. What if we we drop the fight and say, "I am so sorry. I've been pushing you away so long. Sit with me. Tell me. You know, welcome back. Why are you here? Why have I why have I seen you as my enemy? I, let's actually talk. You befriend it." And the wisdom of anger is what co-arises with it. And with that understanding and the new relationship you have with anger, uh, with your anger, a new form of wisdom co-arises with it. And I, I I really like that thought and that view of all of the things that we would look at as emotions. We, we tend to put them in, in our baskets, right? This basket has the pleasant. I want more of it. This basket has the unpleasant. I want less of it. And once we do that and we weigh it, we play the game of do everything you can to get more of the emotions you like and do everything you can to get less of the emotions you don't like. Equanimity is balancing those out and saying, you know, they're all welcome at the table. All of you come here and sit here. Who's here now? Oh, it's anger. Hi, anger. Let's talk. What, what brings you here today? Um, a beautiful thing happens in that process. The relationship with anger changes. A, a new form of wisdom arises with that anger because you actually listen to it and uh, learned from it. Um, and then the intensity of it when it's there is less because it's not this enemy that's pounding at the gates. It's actually an old friend. It's like, ah, huh. it's still unpleasant, but here, yeah, come on in, old friend, you know? Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom that can be gained when we change that relationship we have with our emotions, especially emotions, strong ones like anger. Yeah, I mean, it's my, it's my sense these days that.
1: Cause I think I was really in that camp for a long time. Like, Oh, I'm this guy who's trying to be enlightened. I'm not going to try and have emotions. (laughs) Doesn't really work that well. And so I've, I've moved to a, a philosophy of, all right, what is, what is the information here? Like what, what happened? Like what was the belief I had? What was the action? What was the line that was crossed? Like there's some information coming with this anger. And if I can receive that and learn from it, then I'm, then I'm like getting, I'm drinking the juice of of the moment. Yes. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you so much, Noah. This has been, this has been great. I would love to talk to you for hours, hours more. And I just, I just hope, um, you know, I just hope we could hang out at some point. I really, uh, I've
0: really enjoyed this. Yeah. That would be great. And I'd be happy to do this again. If you want to find another time, we could do this again and chat more. Thank you for listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast. If you enjoyed today's topic and you want to learn more, visit secularbuddhism.com, where I have links to my books, courses, podcast episodes, and information for how to join the Secular Buddhism Podcast community. Thank you for listening. Until next time.